And, and Are you I, out of your mind? Here's the debate. You're upset. They're saying we believe you. Is it? I thought. All right, episode number 146 with the legendary David Berlinski. If you don't know our guest today, let me give him a proper introduction. I gave him a different one off camera. I'm going to give that as well, just, just so you know. I made that <laughs> commitment to you. I'm going to do it. Okay, senior fellow of the Discovery Institute Center for Science and uh, Culture, the hub of intelligent design movement. Uh, he, uh, uh, I want to say he got his PhD in philosophy from uh, Princeton, and uh, was uh, also was a fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University, but he doesn't stop there. He taught philosophy, mathematics, English at Stanford, Rutgers, uh, the city of New, uh, uh, University of New York, uh, University of Washington, University of uh, Puget Sound, San Jose State University, this University of Santa Clara, University of San Francisco, San Francisco State University, mathematics at University de Paris, and he flew in from Paris, which the flight was uneventful and... Here's what I told you off camera, and I want to say to everybody as well. You come across as the man that uh, you, you've debated Hitchens. You've, you've, you've shared a stage with some of the best debaters, Hitchens being on the atheist side. You went up there on the agnostic side. You've gone against Darwinism. You've gone against, I don't know, Sam Harris. You've, you, you have a lot of different opinions, but you're sarcastic. You have a sense of humor. You know how to poke. You know how to get under people's skins, and you're very, very smart. With that being said... David, thank you so much for traveling. Come and visiting us here in Florida. You're so very welcome. It's a pleasure being here. Yes, and it's a pleasure having you, and I love that tie you got. Yeah, I was going to say, well-dressed as well. I mean, above all, sharp. I view intellectual life in terms of the opportunity it affords me to display my wardrobe. That's what it is. I like that. So you really only came to show off your clothes. (laughs) The only reason. The The only reason. Let's just do a fashion show right now. Can you imagine? So, hey, why did you go on that guy's podcast? Listen, I wanted to show the new tiny yeah. suit I had on. <laughs> we spent five minutes talking about his shoes before the, uh, the really? podcast. Yeah. Well, there's no reason to stop that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Forget okay. about God. Forget about evolution. Yeah. Forget no, about Darwinism. I told Let's him. turn this into a I, fashion I show. I told him, listen, you're a, you, you would be, a, what would you call yourself? A confused Jew? Why would you yeah. put yourself as yeah, a Yeah, yeah, I'll take okay. that. Uh, you know, Christian, what would you put yourself? Confused Catholic. Confused Catholic. And then we have a, you know, agnostic over here. And what would you consider yourself, Tyler? Uh, confused Jew, I think. You're not, <laughs> Tyler's not Jewish whatsoever, but he's talking about converting But he's confused. Regardless, I told, the, here's the expectation. I don't like to start podcasts with a very high expectation where we're going to be disappointing ourselves. Today, we're going to start off with a very uh, low expectation. The goal is by the time we are done, we know for a fact who God is. That's what the goal is. It's not a high expectation. And we got somebody like you that can help us with that. <laughs> uh, obviously, the weekend's been very eventful. I mm-hmm. was in, uh, we have another podcast this week. Uh, I was, uh, Friday, I went to Joe Rogan, watched him perform in Jacksonville, which was hilarious. And I saw Tony. Tony Hinchcliffe. Oh, my God. Oh, he's so funny. I, I thought you just went to a UFC. You actually no, saw no, them I was do, with Joe. He, he got me tickets, and I wow. went and watched him perform. He, I had no idea this guy was this funny. Joe, 12,000 people in the room, he's performing in the middle, uh, in the back, a full-on fight breaks out. 20 people rumble. It's hilarious. Everyone's looking at it. They're screaming. Joe's like, what the hell is going on back there? They put the light. 
in that section and you literally see like you know guys punching another guy they all stop and sit down because they didn't want to get arrested cops ran up there it was awesome the next day we went to the fight we had dinner two nights together with joe and tony and hans and you know uh, all the guys just a bunch of man's man freaking awesome conversations a lot of good things coming soon the restaurant we went to is calford steakhouse the owner sent me a message saying i've been watching your content for the longest time the most ridiculous steakhouse in jacksonville bone marrow faux gras wagyu beef they brought everything the dessert was ridiculous we had a good time i'll fill in on a major project that we may be launching here soon that's going to be very funny mm. and it's going to be for men stick around we'll be announcing it probably in the next I don't know, maybe tomorrow, if not, definitely next week, and uh, it's going to be fun. But so anyways. you went from Rogan to the house that Brady built oh, we rented to Mr. Out, Berlinski. Yeah, we rented out the entire Foxborough uh, uh, Stadium, and we brought uh, two Patriots. One was uh, Matt uh, Light, who is hilarious. He was the offensive line, the center for Brady. Mm -hmm. He was telling stories. He won three Super Bowls himself, and he's in the New England Patriots Hall of Fame. And then uh, we had uh, uh, Rob N uh, Ninkovich, N Ninkovich, which is re linebacker, linebacker, yeah. beast number fifty. Absolutely, both of them went to uh, Purdue. Then uh, uh, Tom's uh, uh, agent was there. Manager was financial the guy who's been managing his finances for the last seventeen years. He was there. We sat there and we watched Man in the Arena for two days. It was a great session. We had a great time. But today is about you. So. For some that don't know, if you don't mind taking a minute and give your background on how you got started, why mathematics, how you came to your conclusion with your philosophy, try to do that in a you know, shorter version, and then we'll go into questions and different topics. Sure. Essential uh, Aspects, born 1942, New York, mid-Manhattan. <clears throat> and uh, no matter how many different places I live, I'll always be a New Yorker. That's ineradicable. Um, I went through public schools in New York, went to Bronx Science, then I went to Columbia, and then I went to Princeton for a PhD. After that, I went out to Stanford as an assistant professor, and uh, thereafter I decided I had a higher calling than uh, an academic life. And so I did a lot of different things. I worked for McKinsey for a year. I worked for the city of New York. God only knows how I got a job as a senior budgetary analyst. They gave me $2 billion and said, spend it carefully on the welfare of the city of $2 billion. What year is this? What year is this? This was 1970 or 71. That's a lot of money. $2 billion? Oh, yeah. yeah it went so fast. You I, have bet no it idea. I bet it did. <laughs> I was uh, per perhaps the worst decision of the Lindsay administration to put that kind of money in my hands. I had no <laughs> idea what to do with it except to spend it as rapidly as possible. And then I bounced around in a lot of different academic uh, positions, spent some time at Columbia, uh, taught for a while at Rutgers, uh, moved out to California, lived in San Francisco, taught up and down Silicon Valley and various colleges, switched from teaching philosophy and logic to teaching mathematics. I love teaching mathematics, especially the calculus sequence. And then around 1992, I figured that I'm going to live just by writing. And that's what pretty much I've been doing ever since. 99, I left the United States, moved to France, and I've been in Paris for the last 25 years, very happily ensconced, right next to Notre Dame. Oh. So I'm the beneficiary of a lot of wisdom coming from the cathedral. And if it's worth your while to answer your own questions, I'm prepared to discuss the issue. So why, why Paris? Why did you want to live there? Why have you been there for 25 years? Because the United States was a little too small for me and my ex-wives. <laughs> <laughs> How many ex-wives was that? Sufficiently many. Okay. 
sufficiently many. Right. And that, that was the first question they asked me. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a kind of an immigration right. authorities that when you want to settle in France, uh, the first question is, why are you coming to France? And that was my response. Pascal, les États-Unis sont trop petits pour moi, mais c'est And they said, that's a perfect answer. You've come to the right place. Because <laughs> we them, understand. That's normal. Yeah, on we comprend. Get it. On se comprend. <laughs> and so, I love France even more <clears throat> after that. Why'd you stay there, knowing America's been having the problems it's been having lately? You didn't want to come back here and start no, help, helping us solve some of these no, problems no, instead no, of staying that in France? That sounds morally far too grand for me. Oh I stayed there God. because at a certain age... How selfish of you, man. Yeah, we needed you the last absolutely. two years, David. I understand that, and I feel badly about it. But uh, uh, you reach a certain age, you, don't, you just don't want to move around anymore. I hardly like to leave my apartment. <laughs> Speaking of uh, your ex-wives, um, Playboy, uh, there's a... There's a um, a little bio over here, and can I read a line for you and maybe set you up for the next question? Yeah. This is about, about the, you're a critic of the theory of evolution. And it says, Berlinski is a senior fellow at Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, um, which is a Seattle-based think tank, is the hub of the intelligent design movement. And Berlinski shares the movement's disbelief in the evidence for evolution, but does not openly avow intelligent design and describes his relationship with the idea as warm but distant. It's the same attitude that I display publicly towards my ex-wives. Uh, that publicly wasn't my word. Okay. <laughs> well, everything else, was that accurate? Yeah, sort of. Okay. Sort of, sure. Would you unpack that for us? Well, look, I have a world of admiration for the guys at the Discovery Institute because they've done a remarkable job in bringing to the forefront of biological consciousness some of the deep problems with Darwinian evolution, some of the, the deep problems in biology itself, it's not just the theory of evolution. There's a great deal that's mysterious, not well understood, imponderable, not accessible to theory yet. And there's some terrifically smart people who have essentially made the case that this is a theory which is in many ways, not in every way, but in many ways, not what it's cracked up to be. And I share that sentiment. I wrote a piece, well, way before I joined the Discovery Institute, I wrote a piece for Commentary, which is a magazine out mm -hmm. of New York, making exactly the deniable Darwin, it was called. And uh, ever since I've been puttering um, like a, a small motorboat making related ancillary criticisms, it's not the forefront of my, at the forefront of my attention right now. I mean, you can only spend so much time criticizing Darwinian evolution. But it's an important issue. And I think those guys deserve a world of credit for their critical stance because it hasn't been easy. I mean, the entire biological establishment is joined in a spasm of repugnance when intelligent design is prominently mentioned. Undeserved repugnance, but repugnance anyway. Um, the, the distance that you mentioned is my failure wholeheartedly to embrace the theory of intelligent design. I can't get over there. I can't get over there when the, the goalpost is Darwinian evolution. I can't get over there when the goalpost is intelligent design. That may be my limitation. It may be just a streak of contrariness. I don't know. But I am not an advocate of intelligent design. I've never advocated intelligent design, but I'm deeply sympathetic, sympathetic with it. That's quite a different matter. To be an advocate and to be sympathetic. I'm sympathetic with a lot of things I don't advocate for. If you could, I, I don't know if it's possible to do it linearly, but if on one side of the equation is um, the theory of evolution, right? We came oh, from... Oh, what theory? Okay, so evolution. <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to debate a scientist here, but on one side of the linear uh, side of things is 
We came from monkeys or primates or, you know, salamanders and fish, all that and all that. And then on the complete opposite side of the spectrum is uh, creationism. Uh, and I, I don't know if creationism is different from intelligent design or if you can just kind of paint a picture linearly of where things are in the scientific world and maybe where you are in this and that could kind of open up maybe a further conversation. I rest inscrutably at the middle, affirming neither the left nor the right, but choosing a studied indifference to both. I think that uh, there's a very legitimate case to be made for serious theological affirmations. Not a case I'm prepared to make, but it's a serious case. I mean, it's been a serious case for the last 5,000 years of recorded history. Every culture develops a theology, and with the uh, theology, a certain kind of mythology, uh, and with the mythology, very often an elaborate philosophical apparatus. After all, the Catholic faith is not intellectually insignificant. It's a huge body of doctrine and dogma. Jewish religion has an incredibly uh, exciting, deeply penetrating body of uh, Talmudic interpretation. And I'm sure that the same thing is true of Islam. I, I know much less about uh, Islam than I do about other religions, but I'm sure exactly the same thing is true, that the, the Quran has been the subject of intense meditation and speculation. Uh, I find myself in the uh, somewhat uh, embarrassing position of being very sympathetic to all of those theological aspirations, but in my own life being unable wholeheartedly to participate in them. As I say in one of my books, I forgot where, uh, I'm a secular Jew and I've lived my life as a secular Jew. The Jewishness is inevitable. I was born a Jew, mm -hmm. but the choice of a secular uh, world, the choice of secular ambitions, that's not inevitable. I mean, many people renounce a secular life. But I am in the middle of a secular environment. I wholeheartedly participate in all the moral divagations and the uncertainties of secular life. I embrace secular life. And I'm not about to renounce any of it. At what point did you come to this conclusion? Which conclusion? The fact that, I, that you're neutral, you're staying in the middle, I'm an agnostic, I'm sympathetic for those that, you know, you, you believe there is a God and... Those on the other side, evolution, you know, I, I, this, I'm kind of staying here. At what point did you come to that conclusion? It, you know, when I was at Princeton doing graduate work. So very early. Yeah, 1964, okay. 1965. Yeah. Uh, I was room, roommates with another a very good philosopher. Daniel Messinger was his name. And we had never heard about Darwin's theory. I mean, all through Columbia College, all through a graduate education at Princeton, theory of evolution simply didn't figure, figure on our particular intellectual radar. And one day I, I said to Daniel, you know, maybe we should read that book. And so we both read the book, Darwin's The Origin of Species, and we both came, uh, came away saying, you know, this thing makes no sense. This is just gibberish. Which part of it? We were only 22 at the time. Please bear that yeah. in mind. We had no right to say that. But it is interesting, and I'm talking now from a psychological perspective of my own, that I can very definitely point to that experience, two people reading the foundational text of the theory of evolution, and both of us coming away saying, this, this just doesn't have the ring of truth to it. Of course, it was completely unmotivated. We had no justification for saying it. I'm reporting an intuitive experience because you asked me, can I give you a date? Yeah, 1964, and Princeton. That's when I, I felt that 
that particular double set of animat versions. And you and you never went through the process of like you know how Martin Luther went through a phase of you know fighting and arguing his own argument and going back and forth. You never said, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. I got to go do a little bit more digging to go the other side. So and maybe you did. Did you from 22 ever all of a sudden like lean a little bit more towards maybe there is a God. I think there is a God. I'm just trying to see who God is. Is it Jesus? Is it this? Is it that? Is it which one is it? No, 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 no. I don't think. No, no. I just read this three books here. No, it's not. And, you know, I, I'm kind of, oh, my God, maybe these guys are making sense to me. I'm listening to more of these guys. Were you, was it like a pendulum going back and forth where you're going through it or you just stayed right in your lane? Pendulum going back and forth. I mean, I, I think the gravamen of your question is, uh, did, I, did I suffer uh, the experience of asking myself with a certain amount of intensity, maybe I'm wrong? Yeah, no, I, I can't recall ever saying that to Why, myself. Why, though? Why? Because I felt... Why that level of certainty? No, it's not a level or of certainty. uncertainty, it seems. It's not a level of certainty. It's not a le level of uncertainty. It's a level of indifference. And, and I have to be as candid as, as it's possible to be uh, look at my age, these questions have a, a somber significance they lacked when I was 22. 22, I could say, you know, it doesn't matter what I can do, I can make up for it later. Well, the shadows are getting longer and longer, obviously. Um, but I still find myself emotionally indifferent, although attracted to, but emotionally indifferent to an intense religious life. Perhaps it's fear, perhaps it's just uh, temperamental. I don't know. And there's a lot to be afraid of when you commit yourself to a religious mm -hmm. life, like judgment. <clears throat> I'm certainly not eager to be judged. Nobody is. Now, Pat, when you ask him that question, I assume that's something that you had done on your own. You've been pretty vocal about you were an atheist at one point, and now you, I mean, you literally wear a cross. You've, you've kind of gone through this. What's your, uh, you know, no, when, you use when, pendulum? when Armand and I were going through, you know, he's like, hey, I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm an, I'm an, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. So you, the life I've lived, I don't believe in God. This is when you were. <clears throat> this is I'm 23 years old. Okay. I just got out of the army. It's like nothing's going my way. I'm like, dude, just leave me alone. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go to this religion stuff. Some mm -hmm. people need God. I don't need God. And I would go to different Bible studies and they were all boring to me. Because they're all telling the same exact thing. Then I went to a Bible study that was three mathematicians. One of them was a professor teaching math in Pasadena. The other one was a, uh, a pastor who was all about math. And I relate to that. Because to me, math, you're, the, the great thing about math is you solve for X. What's X? And then you kind of work backwards and you're getting to an answer, right? And that kind of becomes the premise of your life. Business is solve for X. You want to raise $10 million? You want to do this much top line revenue? How many employees do you need? What technology do you need? How much do we need to raise today? What do we need to do with this? And then you kind of solve for that number. You want to sell the business. Everything is about solve for X. And Reverse as, engineering. As, yeah, as some, exactly. And as somebody that is at his level and with his uh, uh, level of humor, because you need that, which you don't take yourself seriously, that allows you to be able to entertain more ideas. If you take yourself way too seriously, you're not going to get to the truth because you protect your ego. So his combination is the right ideal person to want to seek it because he's not trying to be right he's trying to figure out the, i don't know if you understand what i'm saying like he's I, not grounded in in his beliefs no like he's not you, willing to compromise you watch some of these guys that are debating they're not debating for the truth they're debating to prove you wrong yeah and they're great debaters then there's those that you listen to you're like damn this guy is i just believe this guy i mean 
he's I don't feel the ego. I get the feeling with you. So you're the kind of guy I like to listen to because you come across as somebody that you, you know, you don't have a, a, a you're not trying to prove your arguments. Say, Believe me, I'm 100% right. This is what's going on. That's not you. That's not your part. That's why I said, mm-hmm. did he ever go through the battle of pendulum saying, man, this guy made a great argument. I read this book by this guy. Did it ever flip? Mm-hmm. But apparently it did not. Or is there something that we're missing that you, something that you 100% wholeheartedly believe? If there's something that the audience can kind of grasp and be like, all right, this is what this guy stands for. Other than, hey, I don't know what I don't know. Is there something that you totally affirm and stand by? Uh, religiously sure and what is that i'm not going to say how what do you mean you're not going to say why should i confide the innermost secrets of my heart to well, a that, mass audience that's why we have you on here to are you serious people. with that everyone has something everyone hmm. has something locked away about which he has a certain emotional attitude but it's a very very little interest to anyone else is the question, is there anything about which I'm certain? The answer is sure. That's what I want to know. For example, I'm certain that mathematics, to the extent that it's demonstrable, is true. I think there are certain very sophisticated questions you can ask about truth and proof in mathematics, but those are not the questions that I'm asking. I think the body of mathematical knowledge accumulated early part of the 21st century, is the richest body of human knowledge ever accumulated, followed very closely by the body of knowledge encapsulated in theoretical physics. I'm really certain those are, uh, those are achievements, much less certain about lots of other things. Mm-hmm. Certain about the existence, as every man is certain about the existence of certain attitudes, velities, commitments, which make no sense to anyone else. But in answer to your original question, my indifference had a lot to do with watching the experience of my parents. A lot to do. Both my parents grew up in in Germany, Imperial Germany and then Weimar Germany. And they both always said they were children of the Weimar Republic. They began um, music lessons at the age of six and both became professional musicians. My father was a concert pianist in Central Europe. My mother was an excellent pianist. And they both reported to me very early in my childhood their defiance of Jewish orthodoxy, how they both told the rabbi, well, they just didn't believe in God, not the God of the Jewish tradition at any rate. The God they preferred to embrace was the God of art, especially music. They were heirs to the entire rich, complex tradition of German, German music, uh, musical experience. And they enriched that tradition when they moved to France and they learned about the French musical tradition. And the question that always influenced me in my childhood was watching this commitment and asking myself, is this an adequate substitute for a classic theological understanding of the universe? Could some, and it's, it's by no means restricted to my parents. I think everyone from that milieu, intellectuals, writers, artists, musicians, attempted from 1910 to 1940 or so to find a substitute God, uh, a substitute experience which would have the same compelling moral and intellectual force as a classical religious experience. Toward the end of my life, uh, end of my parents' lives, it occurred to me, end of my life as well, 
the last stages, um, that that experiment was a failure. That the God in which they had invested so much emotional and autistic energy was not really a substitute at all. And that was a sobering experience. That I realized, in the end, music failed them both. It didn't provide what they really needed. And I think that's a very common experience when you turn to uh, deep, powerful currents and you try to identify them the way many contemporary intellectuals do when they talk about humanism, for example, as substitutes for discarded tradition, the discovery, I suspect, is almost inevitable that the substitute is pretty much like a sugar substitute. It may taste sweet, but it leaves a very bitter aftertaste. Do you, you know, uh, one of our users just gave a super chat, and he kind of said what I was going to ask you, but he gave scripture behind it, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I'd love to know what this user's name is, by the way, because I can't, every time I say Cove12x12, if you can let us know who you are so I can call you by your first name or whatever name you'd like to be called, I want to give you that credit. He says, taking a position in the middle is interesting. The Bible mentions, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Middle is safe, hot or cold is risky. So the way I would say to someone like you is, for someone, do you think um, the position you took at this stage of your life, you can tell me, Pat, you have no clue what you're talking about. Screw you. I'm very happy where I'm at, and I'm totally okay with that. Do you think you took a safe position from 22 till today, the last 58 years? Or do you think you, uh, you, you could have gone a little bit deeper to really make the argument stronger amongst different denominations and evolu you know, evolution? Or no, you're very satisfied with the position you took? Very satisfied. I mean, surely. Do you know what I'm asking? Well, from a rhetorical point of view, I would never affirm I'm very satisfied. That that, that um, is, is too um, too too vulgar a position, even for me. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not very satisfied. I'm not satisfied at all. But I, at the same time, I am not motivated. I don't have that urgency of desire which would lead me to a full-fledged religious I commitment. Urgency, or I don't have that urgency or desire. Is that what you said? I don't. Urgency of desire. Of desire. You never had it, or you don't have it. Current. I don't think I ever had it. Look, uh, mathematical talent is fairly rare. I mean, you look at the bell curve. The really, really no talented people yeah. are all the way off on the right. Yep. Um, the number of people who are genuinely motivated by a religious instinct, I think, is about as rare. It's a fully consuming commitment. I don't disagree. Hmm? I don't disagree. It's yeah. a fully consuming commitment. You cannot say, I'm leading a religious life and lead the life of a scoundrel. It's very difficult. I mean, you can, you, you can lead the life of a scoundrel and expect or at least hope for divine forgiveness, yeah. but it's not a particularly salutary combination. Um, I think in all the, all the areas, talent in mathematics, talent in art, talent in music, talent in religious experience, the number of people who are seriously committed all the way off on the, the right-hand side of the bell curve. If you go back to the 12th, 13th and 14th century, the number of people who embraced a true monastic life, 
about the same as the number of people who embraced that life in the 20th century. Small percentage of the population. It's a, it's a great mistake to talk about the Christian Middle Ages as if virtually everyone is interested in it. Was deeply involved. I mean, it was, it was a reigning <clears throat> ideology, yeah. that's for sure. Well, well, you know what it's like the way you said it made sense. Like being seven feet tall and having zero interest in basketball. You're like, listen, I'm not interested in basketball. I want to do, you know, complete different game. I'm not, I want to play tennis. I don't want to play basketball. So, you know. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't mean to say I don't want to. I think it's, um, I, I, I certainly um, would acknowledge certain desires, certain wants, which are unfulfillable. For example, I, I would dearly love to be a great, great mathematician, inscribed in all the history books, having produced a, a thunderously magnificent set of demonstrations. That's uh, not going to happen, no matter how much I want it to happen. Um, I think in terms of, of religious experience, there, there is certainly some desire there for a committed religious experience, but it's not going to happen either, because I can't act on it. Mm. David, uh, uh, the basic question, I just, I'm curious to know how you answer this question. Who is God? When somebody says, so David, who is God? What do you say? Well, there are, there are a lot of different answers. You can certainly waffle your head off about a question like that. You can talk about a Plotinus-like uh, access to ever more refined layers of reality, a God followed by successive, successive superior gods, that sort of thing. Um, I think we're pretty limited we're limited to a particular tradition, which is the Judeo-Christian tradition. That's where um, the resonance exists, and we, we understand that tradition best. I, I know the Hindu tradition has a completely different conception of God. Uh, the Buddhist uh, tradition has a different conception of God. But I can't talk to those because all I know from those traditions I know is a matter of scholarship, not intimacy. Um, the Judeo-Christian God is outside time and space, outside the physical universe. It's not one of those things we encounter within the universe. It has certain attributes, certain powers, which we assign to it. I mean, this is theology. It's not a matter of a physical science. We're not discovering this. And um, there are two, there are two or th at least three additional doctrines associated with the question that you just asked. One is the, the very old idea that... Um, Within human beings, there's a kind of image of God. That is, there is a, a synchronous appreciation, God for human beings, human beings for God, which is manifested in art by the assumption that the, a human being somehow reflects the divine. The second assumption is that the surest path to intimacy with the deity lies within. And that's certainly what the Buddhists say as well. That is, the, what is within gives you the, the surest, most accessible way to reach the divinity. And the third is a series of pronouncements about human nature that are part of Western theology. For example, the Christian doctrine of fallen human nature, which suggests, to get back to your question, that when we talk about God, I'm talking about people in our position. We talk about God, we, we're talking about uh, a theoretical entity, and it's just theoretical because we have no hands-on experience, it's beyond ex experimental science, who has an intense personal interest in moral judgment. And that's an aspect which I think is severely neglected. 
um, when we talk about God, we're not talking about someone who fulfills a certain role in explaining how the universe came about. Well, he created the whole thing. Okay, we know that. We know that. That's a traditional assumption. <clears throat> but a less traditional assumption, especially in the 21st century, it's not only a creating God. It's not only a God with enormous powers, embarrassingly large powers. It's not only an infinite God, but it is a God, and this is the crucial point, it's a God who has a peculiar interest in our moral nature and who is prepared, for example, to judge us. That's part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Uh, the judging aspect, and it has been the foundational stone for virtually every system of Judeo-Christian morality since at least the 5th century BC. Uh, very much neglected, because the question is wide open. When you take that foundational stone away, you just yank it away, and you eliminate the idea of the universal system of judgment judging human beings for their acts during their life. Um, what's the result? What happens to society when you take that foundational stone away? This has been a question that I think is, has been pertinent since at least 1820, 1830, when the great movement of secular liberation from Christian doctrine began to accelerate and spread to every corner of, every corner of Europe and the United States. We're talking about a 200-year-old process. Secularism is not just the last 10 years. It's a long, complicated tradition. And uh, we are living in a secular society. It's absolutely obvious. We're not living in a society where people are consumed by the thought of judgment or that they're proposing in any way to put inhibitions or restraints on their desires or to conform in any way to whatever the code of conduct may have been enforced in the 18th and 17th and 16th century, who are in fact proposing to make it up as they go along, which I'm afraid we are all doing. Um, but when you remove that judgment, you were making a point about what happens when you remove that judgment, what happens? Well, it's, it's like asking, what happens in a physical system if you withdraw the energy from it? I mean, the physical system can look just the way it, it did before. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing doing any work anymore. Let's just say it's a piston with no e external source of, of energy driving the piston. Well, I, 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 I cannot say, look, uh, it's perfectly obvious what happens. But I can say, if you want to know what happens, there is a correlation between the rise of secularism and the nature of society. Mm -hmm. Look around. Look around. Uh, are people restraining their behavior? Are they inhibited? Uh, a traditional series of uh, codicils being enforced throughout? The answer seems to be no. Secularism seems to allow a great many things that previously were forbidden. Is that just come down to accountability? Is judgment accountability? Is I mean, some, something that Pat always talks about is accountability. Like, who's holding the politicians accountable? Well, you know, the voters, but... That's a whole other question, but judgment at the end of the day comes down to accountability. Are you going to be accountable for your actions, good or bad? Is that essentially the... That's a good question. I think it's very similar to the question I was raising. I mean, Hobbes said the fear of death is the source of law. The fear of violent death is the source of conscience. It's the source of conscience because violent death, you meet death without any preparation, any, any theological preparations, and you're going to be judged instantaneously. 
That's a very pregnant remark by, by Hobbes. But I think that uh, accountability is another way of saying, look, we, we're now living in a society where the essential force behind judgment, the thing that made it live, um, that's been progressively withdrawn. There's no point in denying it, it seems to me. No point in saying, well, we've, we've recreated uh, a moral universe in every way uh, comparable to the, the moral universe that we have uh, denied or derided. Are you a gambler? Are you a gambling man? <clears throat> no. Do you no. like gambling on horses or, you know, like sports or any of that? No. You don't play Sorry. cars. You don't play dice. You don't. You don't play crabs. You don't play any of that. Any no. Of that. No, no. Really? No, you're missing out, man. <laughs> no, I was really? the reason why I was going to ask. But would you say, uh, 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 are you, are you the kind of guy that when you were 25 years old at a bar you saw a hot girl, did you overthink it in your mind and say, you know, I don't know if I want to go talk to her because what if she says no? Or were you kind of like, I'm just going to go talk to her? You took the risk and you spoke to her. Neither. Neither. What did no. you just sat there and she came to you? That's right. We're not part of that elite. <laughs> so you had life this easy. Guy. This. So even before Tinder, you were it. Tinder. I'm so they were swiping you I right. Was, was what? You were Tinder. Do you know what Tinder is? No. Believe me, they made it after you. Tinder is like a dating site in America. A dating that, app. Yeah, yeah. It's a dating app that guys use to swipe right to get dates. But, but but going going back, I don't think you needed it though. <laughs> but going back to you, your personality is not at all risky. Are you like the guy that, hey, let's go jump off that cliff. You're like, I don't want to jump off that cliff. Of course it's risky. I see it being risky. Which risks am I prepared to take? Gambling? No. Well, okay. So then, no, because to me, marriage is risky. Having kids is risky. Going into business is risky. Moving to Paris is risky. Moving to a different... Life is risky, right? Taking a position with faith is risky. Deciding to do almost anything today is risky, right? So, look, I understand the position of assuming formlessness, which means never like, hey, you guys, I I understand your position. I disagree with this, but I understand this position, but I disagree with this, and I kind of stay here. That's a safe, not risky position, but you also don't create enemies. So so you kind of stay in a place where enemies are not being created, but... Oh, you'd be surprised. How are you making you'd enemies? So who are your enemies? I don't I don't see people dislike even when your debate with Hitchens, Hitchens was very respectful and he wasn't it wasn't as typical. He was more vicious towards his brother than he was to you. You guys had a very yeah. nice debate. We had an extremely pleasant debate, but yeah. don't forget he was terribly ill at the time. I don't think he had the energy or the vigor really to do a full court press. I don't think so. It was uh, a one hour. It wasn't a three hour. I, I, it, it, it was hour, a one hour minutes, debate. Yeah. And but isn't that kind of like not the point of the debate to have a nice, pleasant debate? Isn't it the, depends whether you're dealing with a man at the, at the brink of death or not. A lot depends on that. Hmm. I mean, if he had been indisposed with a headache, that would have been one thing. But he was dying of cancer. And uh, that changed all the parameters. At least it did for me. I was in absolutely no mood to attack him. Got it. Pat, you're asking about risk for a reason. Yeah, I want to go to that. I want him to elaborate on that. I want him to unpack that uh, the question of he, you come across as a guy that would be the risky guy. You've taken bigger risks in your life. At this phase of your life, at 80, do you sit there and say, well, like inside when you're by yourself, nobody's around. You're sitting at a coffee shop in Paris. You're having your nice croissant and the same waitress is coming to you and you're speaking to her and... You're reading the paper or whatever book you would be reading, and you're saying, 
Okay, David, we kind of got to risk and take one of them. What do we want to do? Is it going to be Jew? Is it going to be Christian? Is it going to be Aldeas? Are we going Catholic? Are we going to go Muslim? Let's take it. Let's pick one of them. I got a 20% no, no. chance. No, I'm I mean, a, you know, I'm going to go Baha'i because Baha'i welcomes all the religions. You don't think about it's a like... a little like Pascal's wager, isn't it? I mean, that's the question you really <laughs> ask me. Would yes. I accept Pascal's wager? What is Pascal's wager? Pascal, 17th century, he had a, a wonderful theological argument about commitment commitment to God, belief in God. And he said, look, what do you lose? What do you lose? If you commit yourself to God and you live a, a God-fearing life mm -hmm. and God exists, well, that's a terrific benefit. You've come out ahead of the game. And if he doesn't exist, what have you lost? You okay. lost nothing. In game theory, that's called a dominant strategy. No matter what, it's better to believe in God. If you don't believe in God and he exists, you're in for an awfully hard time. Got it. And if you don't believe in God and he doesn't exist, well, so nothing changes. So why is that a bad approach? Seems very reasonable. I don't think reasonable. it's a bad approach at all. I think it's an excellent approach and everyone I've talked to, when I translate that argument into practical terms, agree, yes, I accept Pascal's wager. He was right. And he mm -hmm. was right. That doesn't mean that the argument... Well, you're saying he's right. But you're I, not willing to accept Pascal's wager. Yeah, but that's a limitation of an argument. You know, there are many arguments I, I can consider where the premises are true, the conclusion follows logically, but it doesn't mean anything to me. You'd be a very hard uh, impossible uh, but no, person but, to put but, on the, but uh, that's, but no, the I trial. Think, I, I, I hate to use this uh, angle on what I'm saying. I can see at 20 taking that position. I can see at 30 taking mm -hmm. that position. It's like I look at my when I you're, you're, my dad and you are the same age, except you are older than my dad by nine weeks. He's April 10th. You're February 5th. Both of you guys are 1942. He just had a birthday. Both of you guys just turned 80. Um, <clears throat> you you like for, like, you know, I'm spending this week with our guys and we're talking about leadership and all this other stuff. And age decade, I ask myself different questions. And in that decade, that question was the most important question. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it, when you're teens, you're asking, man, you know, whatever the question may be in your teens, you know, when can I grow? When, up? Am, I, when, when am I going to grow? When am I going to be cool? When am I going to be, have a girlfriend? When can I go? You know, whatever questions you ask. Okay. Am I going to get a job? Am I going to do that? Okay. In your twenties, you ask different questions. In your thirties, you ask different questions. In your forties, you have different questions. Certain questions are constant, right? What's my purpose? Why am I here? What am I doing? What do you want me to do? What's, what am I supposed to do? Am I in the right position I'm at right now? Am I in the career? Certain questions are going to be constant, right? But certain questions as you age, the weight gets heavier and it gets more important to you at that age than it did a decade or two or three decades ago. I think that's undoubtedly true. Well, what is the question that's the heaviest for you at your age? Because you just turned 80. So I only can tell you what's the most heaviest question at my age. But what is the heaviest question at your age being 80? I don't know what it is to be 80. I only know what it is to be 43. The heaviest question Heaviest age, question 80? by yourself. When you, don't, you, don't, you don't mean the questions that inevitably possess people my age. No, Efficient for you. digestion, health, uh, okay. social security. Those aren't the questions you're no, talking I'm about. Not. I'm not. And no. by the way, but by the way, that's also good for me to know because, you know, I'm talking to a guy when I was in my 20s. I'm trying to figure out if I want to get married or not because I was actually contemplating even ever getting married. I enjoy my own company. I don't know if I want to get married. So I had to really 
make sense of does this marriage thing make sense for me? Maybe it does for other people. Maybe it doesn't for me. It was a very difficult question. So I'd go around asking people the questions. And then finally, I came down to a point of no matter who you marry, there's a risk, and it's a risk I'm willing to take. And here's how I can hedge my risk. But no matter who I marry, there's going to be a risk, right? And then one, I'm listening to this uh, uh, husband and wife who are in their 60s, late 60s, and then I'm listening to this uh, husband and wife who just got married in their 20s, and I'm listening to this guy that's early 20s, single, then somebody that's divorced in their 40s, and they're all talking about marriage and relationship. And eventually this 68-year-old husband and wife says, you know, when I was in my 20s, 30s, I thought it was all about sex. And let me tell you what happened. Then health happened. Then this happened. Then health happened to me. And I was, you know, uh, uh, health happened to my wife first. And I was complaining to her because my wife couldn't have sex with me for nine months. And then nine months later, the moment we could have sex, then health happened to me. And I felt so embarrassed because I judged her so much. And then you're like, oh, interesting. So maybe one day you're going to go through some of these things would help. So I learn as a man, as I'm aging, right? I'm trying to learn from you. Set those questions aside. What are some heavy questions that, you know, get you thinking at this age? You lived a pretty good life. I can complain. Certainly not. Or I could complain, but I shan't. Um, I think the question, the really heavy questions are sorrowful questions at my age. And um, one of the experiences of anyone who has lived the kind of life that I've lived is the discovery that inexorably one has put a certain distance between what one is doing, in my case writing, and the audience one hoped to see. That is, the separation begins the minute you publish something. You attract certain readers, you repel other readers. That's a normal point of equilibrium. The further you progress in any kind of literary life, on the one hand, you may, if you're lucky, cement a reputation and <clears throat> achieve a certain loyal readership. But inevitably, you discover that thrill of reaching an audience is disappointed because you are inevitably writing for the past that at my age, I can no, no, no longer be a fresh voice and therefore no longer attract new readers. That's exactly how it should be. Why? Because of your age, you're saying people are going to be less interested? They are less interested. Well, that, that, that's not the case for Bernie Sanders. Nobody gave two craps about him for decades. And now all of a sudden, of the past five, ten years, he's the, you know, lucky one of the biggest... Bern lucky Bernie. You think that's luck? I don't know. Or that's conviction and hard work? But continue. I'm could, curious. Could continue. be a combination of the both. Okay. But I think every writer has the same experience that at hmm. a certain point, even Philip Roth, uh, at a certain point, that vivid, intense relationship with an audience that every writer imagines is out there palpitating, waiting, hanging on your every word, that disappears. And I certainly feel that in my own case. I'm not complaining. I have readers. That's not the point. Uh, but in the larger sense, I've lost an audience. And everything about me is suggestive of anachronism. That is a time before the present time. And again, that's inevitable. One can be at the pre in the present, completely in the present, only at a certain age. The age of discovery, say from 15 to 30 or 15 to 35. So when you talk about um, what are some of the deeper aspects of being 80 
early middle-aged, as I remarked earlier, mm -hmm. um, that sorrowful discovery that, hey, look, you are about to begin the process of outliving your time. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But it is not a joyous experience, that discovery. Neither should it be terribly sorrowful. It's sorrowful, but it shouldn't be terribly sorrowful. They're compensations. You have kids? Sure. How old are your kids? My daughter is, she was born in 68, and my son was born in 73. How did you raise your kids? Religiously, religiously I'm asking. In no way. You didn't. You said you're secularly Jewish, but you didn't celebrate Hanukkah, Rosh Hashanah, nothing? Nothing. Garnished. And did they celebrate Christmas, American holidays? Well, it's inescapable. You celebrate Christmas right. because you take off from but work. But you said, hey, by the way, we are Jewish. You don't really believe I think, I think in the, Santa the and Jesus. The fact that we were Jewish was imprinted on us vividly by my parents, by okay. the Holocaust, by the events of history. There's no escaping that, no desire to escape it either. But in terms, of, again, of a religious life, mm -hmm. not even a suggestion. And your kids knew your parents. Oh, yeah. And your parents fled Germany right at the height of the Holocaust. No, they fled, uh, fled Germany in 1932, but for France. Okay. Which was a big mistake. So, right. Well, this must have had some bearing on your religious views and your parents' religion's views. You said that they prayed to the god of music. I didn't or say the they arts, prayed. Or, you know, they believed in the god of... But I know a lot of... Like, I'm Jewish. I've had family, grandparents, aunts and uncles that died in the Holocaust. And... I always find it, there's so many Jews that say, I could never believe in God again. Like, it killed my entire family, killed everyone I know. And there's some Jews that somehow become more religious, and they cling sure. to that. What, you know, what affected the Holocaust and everything that happened? You're from Germany in the 1940s. Your family was there. What effect did that have on your religion? And then how did that trickle down to your kids? Because your kid's not having any religious basis there's got to be something tying this all together. No, you, you've got to pay more attention to what I'm saying. I didn't say my children have no religious basis. They grew up as Jews, as I grew up. Mm -hmm. They had no religious education, which is quite a different matter. For example, they never went to temple? Never went to temple. They had no bar mitzvah? No bar mitzvah. I did. They didn't. Okay. You see the, you see the tr tradition undergoing a gradual dissolution, which I yeah. think is, is characteristic of the Jewish experience, liberal Judaism. Um, my parents regarded the Holocaust as a confirmation of their Jewish identity. My father always said, the Nazis taught me I was a Jew. Mm -hmm. And he was right. But that doesn't mean he rediscovered a religious faith. It meant he rediscovered the fact that he was a Jew. His, my mother was a Jew. The family was Jewish. Culturally. Far more than culturally. Being Jewish is not a cultural phenomenon. Not, at, at least it's more than that. It's a deep continuity of historical experience and historical memory. My grandfather perished in Auschwitz. Uh, my mother never got over that. And uh, nonetheless, my parents' effort, I'm talking about my parents' effort, to give me a religious education didn't succeed. I did have a bar mitzvah. I still remember my bar mitzvah prayers. But uh, the sad truth of the matter is I found it all excruciatingly boring. And I still do. Mm -hmm. um, I can attest to that. I'm not about to spend a whole lot of time in a temple. Mm -hmm. are, what are your kids now? What are their faith now? Are, are they practicing or they're similar to you? We're all secular. 
all secular, deeply secular. And we have all of the vices, but all of the virtues of a secular identity. That is, we all <clears throat> in some way believe that uh, we're self-created, um, that the most important thing uh, in our lives collectively is the autonomy of personality, that the personality exists in order to be satisfied, that uh, our desires have an intrinsic value that are quite independent of what other people believe. Um, I think... Uh, both my children and I certainly appreciate the fact that to achieve certain things, there's a, a great deal of discipline involved. I'm not talking about hedonism, uh, the desire to lead, lead a life such that you're having a good time all the time. I don't think anyone believes in that. Uh, uh, I live in South Beach. There might be some people that disagree with you. I, South Beach, Florida, I guess. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, certainly there are people prepared to say it, mm -hmm. but... Um, I know very few people, very few satisfied hedonists over the age mm. of 30. Um, the declaration that you live to have a good time all the time, it becomes very wearying after a while. Um, but uh, secularism imposes some severe uh, restraints on how you live. I mean, you cannot rely to an extent, to the extent that it was possible to rely, say, in the 17th or early 18th century, on institutional authorities that at every step of the way guide your footsteps. Uh, secularism is the prospect of allowing human beings to create themselves anew in each generation. There's no question about that. And sometimes it's very difficult, sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's exhilarating, but as far as I can see, we are all in the position of someone in a lifeboat uh, wondering whether it would be more practicable to sail the seas in an ocean liner. Well, we don't have an ocean liner anymore. We've got the lifeboat, secularism, if you will. And that has to, uh, that has to be enough. We're always in the process of fiddling with the lifeboat, changing the oar locks, wondering whether we should be sitting in the front or in the back. But fundamentally, we don't have access to an ocean liner, that ma majestic ocean liner of faith that has pretty much disappeared. Do you envy people of faith? No. And why is that? What should I envy them for? So what do you think comes after life? I have no idea. And no idea and not even something you've thought about, you decay, the body breaks down, it's gone. Because some say... No, I've, no, I've no. Heard... no, no, I'm not committing myself to a view that uh, there is no possibility of experience after death. I have no privileged insight into that and no one else does either. Certainly the fact that Every single society in recorded history has had some, sort, some form of intense speculation about the afterlife is significant because it's a deeply, a deeply uh, essential part of human nature to entertain those convictions. Uh, but again, all I can say is I'll know soon enough. <laughs> Please come back and visit us when I uh, sure when that will. Happens. You've got to give me your portable what, what, number. What, what do you think? What do you think is the? Uh, uh, do you have a son or or you said son, son seventy three right seventy three? He's born seventy three. She's sixty eight. Yeah. Okay. So the son that's seventy three, he asks you that. Uh, what do you think is the purpose of a man? In like, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to do? Like, if you were, and I know you're going to say to each his own. Everybody's different. Some it's being this, some it's being that. Like, what is my, you know, what 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 purpose do I serve in this world? What am I supposed to be 
seeking in life? Why am I here? Well, if, I, if I'm your son and I ask you the question, what do you tell him? Well, I think, I think like many other questions that are being asked today, especially in social media, um, the question is ceremonial more than it is substantive. I don't think I've ever had a conversation in which my son would pose the question, what is my purpose as a man in life? Um, you only have one son. If you one had a son. few more, if, if one he of them were to you. pose yeah. that question, I would say, hey, Dumbo, look at your grandfather. Imitate that. In fact, I think I've said exactly that. Your grandfather is a model of what a man should be. Why? Because he was unyieldingly tough, resourceful, highly intelligent, honorable, fought in the Foreign Legion, got my mother out of Germany, got my mother out of France, crossed the Pyrenees on foot, made a new life in the United States, uh, and uh, was enormously proud of the fact that he was one of the few Jews in 1940 to face the Germans with a submachine gun in his hands. That's enough to be a Respect, of course, salute at the highest level. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, if my son were, were, were to ask the question, how do I be a man? Say, Imitate your grandfather. Uh, uh, David, so remember how I asked you the question, what are some of the heaviest questions at this age where you're at? What, what are some things, some strong convictions you had in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, you pick it, that now it's kind of like, you know, yeah, it's not that important. You know, I used to think X, Y, Z was so important. It's really not that big of a deal. That's a, that's a very good question. I, I, except for the, the concluding part, I, I don't have many where I say it's not that important, but I have, I have many convictions I can remember from the 60s. I was slightly... When you were 60 or in the no, 1960s? In, in the 1960s. I got you. Okay. Um, you've got to remember I was not a baby boomer. I was born in 42, so I was three years older than the generation um, to which I was exposed in the classroom. And... Uh, I have to say my own defense, I was very suspicious of the 1960s, although I participated enthusiastically and I encouraged my students to rip up their draft card while keeping mine pristine condition. Mm -hmm. God forbid I should go to jail for my convictions. Um, and uh, when I heard in 1964 the Rolling Stones painted black, which was a, a very popular song in the 19, early 1960s, I realized that the sexual revolution was imminent was about to break loose. I mean, didn't take a whole lot of perspicacity to realize that. But I must say that all of those impulses, hedonistic impulses, which seemed to make so much sense, destroy everything, rebuild everything on a peaceful, sexually enlightened basis, the hell with the family, the hell with commitments, the hell with patriotic concerns, simply develop your own sensibility and live as gloriously as possible in the satisfaction of any desire, no matter how vagrant, remote, or degraded. That was part of the 60s, and it came to catastrophe. The 60s did not end well. We did incredible, incalculable damage to American society in the 60s, and I watched it all happen. I was far too jejun or even stupid to, to recognize it in front of me. Even my objections to the Vietnam War were puerile. And I thought, I thought the Vietnam War was a, a catastrophe because I was 1A. Uh, I certainly wasn't uh, about to go off to Vietnam to see my own ass blown off. That was out of the question. Uh, my father did not approve of that attitude. He did not approve of that attitude. Uh, he didn't say anything, but... You know, every son can feel a father's disapproval. Um, 
He thought there was something scandalous about not being unwilling to defend your country by joining the military. Um, looking back, I'm not really prepared to, to make a judgment. To this day, I don't think the Vietnam War has received the kind of scholarly attention that it really does deserve. It's too early. I mean, the Vietnam War ended in 1973, 1974. It's going to take 100 years before we really understand the wars, uh, Indo-Chinese wars of succession. And don't forget, they began in 1945. The French were chased out, then the Americans were chased out. But I do think that in 1962, 1963, and this remains an abiding conviction, um, not quite an answer to your question, but perhaps illustrates the nature of the question, that no American president could have done anything other than what Kennedy and Johnson did do. I think that's, that's true. And that's uh, a very curious point because it puts the entire structure of the anti-war movement in a different perspective. Um, I have a lot more respect now than I did in the 60s for my father's attitude about honor demanding a willingness to serve. A lot more respect. I got a lot of respect for your, for your father's uh, uh, level of uh, appreciation as a patriot to what this country probably gave him and his family where he... Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, 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 you have no idea. Oh, it's honorable to have that mindset. Yeah. Totally honorable. But go back to the question. I, I actually want you to put some energy into this one here and think about it because I want to learn from you. What are some convictions you had early on? And I get 60s is one of them. That was great. Give me another one. What are some convictions you had where now it's like, yeah, I don't know why I dwelled over that. It wasn't that big of a deal. Seems to me, to be honest, that the questions over which I intensely dwelled were that big of a deal. The nature of family life, the nature of marriage, the nature of commitment. I don't think those Got could it. properly be said to be not that big of a deal. I think they were very much a big deal. So whatever you spent a lot of time thinking about ended up being very important issues that you spent a lot of time thinking about. You mean very important issues to me or very yeah. important issues, well, period? Well, to you, I'm just trying to learn from yeah. you. So to you, period. Yeah. 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 I think the fact that you dwell on certain things, I mean, obviously there's psychological states where it's unwholesome and unhealthy, morbidly to be attached to certain ideas. Just don't go anywhere. They spin. But if a man says, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, a lot of time involved in the emotional discontent these thoughts provide, that's a pretty good indication that he thinks they're important. Don't you think? I do. Uh, I, um, I do. David, when, you're audi when you walk in the streets and somebody identifies you or somebody sees you, and oh, my God, I've read your books, and I've heard this, and you know, you help me, dot, dot, dot. What is the most common thing you hear from people who are fans of yours, who have read your material, who have followed your philosophies? What did you inspire them to do? Well, I think the, the people who actually break the privacy barrier to come up to me, and there haven't been many, trust me, uh, once or twice I've been recognized in the streets, and that's about it. But, but I'm talking about even in when you're giving speeches. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about you're in a university, you're giving a talk, or you're, yeah. you're at a debate, and somebody comes up to you and says, David, you sure. help me, pa, pa, pa. Sure. What do they tell you, inspire them to do? I think the, 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 the formal aspect is, um, I'm very grateful for being provocative and opening up certain questions that I wouldn't have thought about myself. And, and uh, that happens fairly often. Thank you for asking those kinds of questions. Thank you for being skeptical about that kind of position. Thank you for being unskeptical about other kinds of positions. And that happens often. Um, the much more emotionally loaded 
compliment or remark is, thank you for being so provocative. Um, and you never know quite what is meant, whether they're thanking you for taking the flack, being a scapegoat, or genuinely thanking you for saying what in other contexts would be unsayable. It's, it's never clear. You always run the risk, if you're a, a man in my position, of coming perilously close to uh, self-parody. You always run that risk, just saying things for the effect. Um, okay, so today, with what's going on, you said something, you said the secular movement, you said 200 years ago, I would say probably Woodrow Wilson when they took Bible out of school and people stopped having to go through some of the things. So for me, it would be 117 years ago maybe, but let's just say you say 200 years ago, fine. Uh, the secular movement where man fears a higher power less. It's like, ah, whatever, you know, yeah, I get it. It's totally fine. I'm like, you know, sure. we're no longer seeing, hey, you know, president get up and, you know, give us a prayer or you go to school and prayer and, you know, whether you believe or not, the power of prayer is a way of telling a kid that, hey, there's somebody that's watching over you where you're by yourself and you're fearing you don't have to commit suicide because you can pray and speak to somebody. You are not by yourself. Somebody has your back. If I just see the side effects of the direction we're going without a God, whether it's true or not. Because, you know, the way I look at it is I look at if you start a country, let's just say you start a country today and the five of us are going to start a country. You're going to be the president. I'm going to be a general of a military He's going to be the one that's checking everyone's IDs to see what, uh, you know, how good looking they are, whatever. And Kai's going to do a different job. Tyler's going to do a different job. You know, uh, would I build my country on a foundation of a faith or without it? I think whether people believe in the faith or not, to build it on a foundation of a faith is going to have a higher chances of doing better than one not being built on a certain set of values and principles. Because if you don't, then people are going to create their own set of values and principles. So, if we're not living by the same set of values and principles, then I don't have to meet your values and principles. I don't care what you believe in. I don't believe in what you believe in, so I don't have to be committed to your values and principles. I can do whatever the hell I want to do. I don't care if I earn your loyalty or your trust or your relationship. Then there's that confusion, right? So for somebody like yourself, because you know that whole saying, you you know, you know, said this on the last podcast, you know, you know, strong leaders build good times, good leaders build, you know, weak leaders, weak leaders build bad times, bad leaders build strong leaders, and that, that whole thing's going. Do you think your generation, now your fathers, do you think your generation is a generation of strong leaders? My generation? Yours. No, exceptionally weak leaders. So, so isn't, isn't, okay, so, so, and I, I'm, you said that, so if that's the case and that's what you're saying, what do you think is the responsibility of your generation to share with maybe our generation so we don't continue that, you know, uh, uh, same, you know, so we can learn something. So say, hey, you guys got to pay attention to X, Y, Z. Let me tell you what's going on right now in the world, specifically in America. I've been in Paris for 25 years. I've been watching you guys from the outside. The America I'm used to is America used to be, bah, 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 but today's America is da, 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 da. You guys got to be careful with these five things. You have zero interest in so That's you, not a question you're going to get me to answer. You know that. No, I don't know that. Yeah, of course. I mean, how can I appear Gamble a little show? bit. No, how can I appear as a prophet? Do I have any lesson? I didn't lesson? say prophet. No, well, it's a prophetic task no, you're assigning but, me. No, but I'm talking, look, no. Look, for example, okay, say if he's dating a girl, okay, uh, and he says, Pat, he hasn't done it yet. 
But if he says, Pat, this is the first time I'm asking you for a double date because I want to get your opinion on it. He's never asked me, which means what? He's never dated a girl that's that serious, okay? He's never asked me. But the date comes when he asks me, I want to go on a double date. I think this thing's getting a little bit serious. I want to get your feedback on it, okay? So we go, and I meet her, and we walk away. And he says, so what do you think? And I had a two-and-a-half-hour dinner with her. So I really got a chance. So she sat right in front of me, and he sat right in front of my wife. So they're talking, and I'm learning about her, right? And uh, what do you think? And I say, you know, I would suggest, pa, 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 I really like their energy. I think you guys are going to be good. But, you know, I, I take my time. I would give some kind of counsel as a friend to look at for my friend, my brother, right? I would give some kind of a counsel to say, here's, it's not necessarily prophetic, but it's more counsel to say, odds-wise, the odds are, son, here's what I would do before you get married. The odds are, if you want to take care of I've been a financial advisor for 20 plus years, right? I don't sit with a client and saying, guaranteed we're going to get you 12%. I can't say, guaranteed you're going to heaven. Guaranteed America is going to be better. I'm asking you based on odds and your wisdom and your look, life. What do you tell us? What can we be prepared for? Because we don't want to get another bad time. If you want to go out and introduce me to your girlfriend, I'll give you my honest opinion. <laughs> if you want <laughs> my wisdom, my inexpressible wisdom about the cost of American society yes. uh, and a recommendation for what we collectively should be doing, I have to discourage you. I don't have that. I, I don't, don't have that. that, that why are you playing safe, though, David? Why are you playing so safe? I don't know why you're... You know, you said something earlier. You said, uh, you know, the level of interest in people in me right now is, you know, like versus what it used to be at this age. I'm the opposite. Like, I enjoy talking to people when their age starts with an eight. I don't know. I can't tell you how many people I've interviewed. That's I, another I, respect in which we're different. I don't. Oh, I know you don't. I'm telling you. Well, your interest is different than my interest is. But my interest is I, I want to I suck as much wisdom from you as possible because that's the edge in life. I pray for four things. Courage, wisdom, tolerance, understanding. But for, for, for me, like I have a painting of my, uh, in the club room. You know who's in the club room? Everybody in the painting that I have, I'm in it, plus seven other people. The seven other people that are in it, none of them are here. All right, let me ask you a question. Yes, please. Let me ask you a question. Go for it. What kind of answer would satisfy you, coming from my lips? You don't have to be specific, just in general. I would tell you what kind of answer would satisfy me. The answer that is the most uh, uh, thought-out answer and as real as possible. I'm not looking for an answer that I want to hear. That's not my style. I'm a leader. I'm not, I'm not soft. I'm strong. I'm looking for an answer for you to give to say, here's where my generation screwed up, okay? If I had it my way, as much as I'm somebody that's, uh, that's agnostic, I do think faith plays a very important role, or maybe it's not. Maybe it's we got soft because, you know, we didn't pay attention to the X, Y, Z, and we should have. You know, I noticed America kind of went this direction. They try to be too much like Europe, and they shouldn't have. America was the leader. They try to be like, I don't know what it is. But whatever's in your mind to say, here's what I would pass down to you. Because you said the, you said weak leaders, your generation. I did not say it. You said, you said your dad is the epi epitome of a leader where your son was born in 1973. If you're going to be a man's man, look at, my, look at your grandpa. And I agree, that's a man's man, right? But I'm asking you. What can we learn from what you've seen so we don't screw this shit up? Because I got four kids. I got a 10, 8, and a 5-year-old and a 9-month-old. You just saw the 5-year-old in here. My daughter hmm. was in a podcast running around. 
I want to learn from you. Sincerely, I want to learn from you so I don't Look, screw it all, up myself. All, all I can tell you is I've been out of country for 25 years now. My experience has all been centered in France. Coming back regarding the United States, it seems to me on the one hand an enormous amount of energy is present in the United States, an enormous amount of exhilaration, an enormous amount of optimism, strangely enough. And at the same time, I can see very clearly there are all-consuming social divisions, cultural and social divisions. All right, I see it. Are you asking me for a diagnosis and the respect in which my generation made decisions that led to this? Well, sure, that's inevitably true. The generation that came to power in the 1960s witnessed the collapse of authority. That's unmistakably true, a collapse of political, moral, intellectual, social, and sexual authority. And that has reverberated for the succeeding 50 years. There's no question about that. We're still living with decisions made in the 1960s, say the period between 1962 and 1971, 1972, when tendencies acquired a certain fixity of direction. But that's not necessarily to say anything about a generation screwing up because that inculpates a generation in something they did deliberately. And I think the, the fundamental facts of the 1960s is not that anyone did anything deliberately, but they were all victims of a process of interior collapse. Not the first time in the 20th century we've seen that. I mean, you can go to France and say the uh, 1930s and see a very similar dynamic at work. Um, so no, I don't think it's a question that my generation or the baby boomer generation screwed up, but that at a certain period of time, a great many contingencies occurred simultaneously. The wars of Indo-Chinese succession, proceeding apace no matter what the Americans did or thought socially or culturally. Um, the assassination of JFK, which no one expected, which disrupted the political continuity of American life. The ascension to power of Lyndon Johnson, who was a magnificent domestic politician, but very inexperienced in foreign policy. The progressive aging of a foreign policy establishment that successfully fought the Second World War and navigated the Cold War with the Russians in the 1950s. The fact that there was an enormous increase in young people aged 15 to 25 as the result of the end of the Second World War. That's why they were called the baby boomer generation. Um, the fact that every time there's an enormous cohort, population cohort, a bulge in the population, there's bound to be some sort of strife, fraternal strife, social strife, because every new generation needs to be disciplined and domesticated. The larger the generation, the more difficult it is to enforce the authority of the previous generations. All these things came together in the 1960s. Nobody intended that they came together, they come together. They did come together. And we are living with the repercussions ever since. In addition to all that, the 1960s was a continuation of an historical process that goes back at least to the French Revolution, that is the increasing secularization of the social order, the withdrawal of established institutions of religion, for example, the Catholic Church in France. <clears throat> with the Protestant clergy in the United States as well. And you can trace it out step by step. If you look at English poetry from 1820 to 1850, you can see an arc 
1820, you have someone like Lord Byron saying the Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the poem is about the destruction of an Assyrian army. The poem, en poem ends... The famine? Uh, the f you're talking about the famine? No, the destruction of Sennacherib. Got it. Um, and the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath withered like snow in the glance of the Lord. Now, this is a flimsy poem. It's not a great mm -hmm. piece of poetry. The date is 1822, and Byron could write in the expectation that every one of his readers would understand that he was participating in what was still a Christian society. It may not have been a completely committed Christian society, but the architecture was as plain as the architecture of Notre Dame. You go 30 years into the future. It's not a long time. You have Matthew Arnold writing Dover Beach. He says, Oh, my beloved, let us be true to one another, for the world which lies about us like a land of dreams hath neither really joy nor light nor life, nor certitude, nor peace, nor health from pain. And we are on as, uh, as on a darkling plain, swept by confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. That's a completely different worldview. Byron could not have understood that. He's talking about the melancholy, long withdrawal of faith from the European continent. Oh, 30 years, you see a change, a dramatic change in the diapason of European life. And you can, you can continue that right through to T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, Philip Larkin. Um, the decline has been not necessarily linear, but it's been inexorable. So all these things play a role in talking about, when I talk about the generation that came just after me, the baby boomer generation, I don't think any lessons can be learned for what are historical necessities. What we see is a great many contingencies occurring at the same time, roughly the same 10-year period, and then bang, a lot of different trajectories set as if they were canals, canals dividing the sand. And that's very different. I can talk till I'm blue in the face about the Collapse of authority, which I witnessed myself in, the in a university setting. I saw all the people I respected deeply, for example, crumble in the face of student protests. Just crumble. I saw that at Columbia. I saw that at Princeton. I saw that at Stanford. Less at Stanford, but I saw it at Berkeley as well. Berkeley, of course. And, um, <clears throat> you know, you have um, pig ignorant people like Mario Savio, Savio at Berkeley getting up on top of a car and denouncing a system which was in every space every respect, one of the glories of American democracy, the California university system. And the university officials, I was right there. I watched them saying, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Bow down low, scrape the ground with their nose. And all that I could think of at the time, and a few other people thinking the same thing, <coughs> uh, how dismal to see this great tongue fall so low as to lick the dust. Do you think professors have more voice today or in the... 70s, 80s, 90s? They've had an unwholesome effect since the 50s. That is, uh, the American professoriate, but I think also in England and France it's true. Well, then let me ask the question in, in a different way. So the whole thing with your generation where it's, it's led to today, there's two things I think about. Like I think about when I see a, an office or I see a, a CEO or a business owner or a leader I just spend uh, uh, two days with a bunch of patriots, and they're talking about Bill Belichick. And I said, 
from the first time you played for the guy when he hadn't won a Super Bowl yet, this is Matt Light, to him now, who he's won six Super Bowls, he's known as one of the greatest coaches of all time, if not the greatest coach of all time. What changed with him? Did his standards drop? Did he get easier to work with? What happened with him? You know what both you know what everybody in that room said? They said one changed. thing about Bill Belichick is his standards never dropped, right? right? That's why he keeps winning because you have to constantly raise up to his standards. But what the NFL did, they used to be able to do two-day trainings, and they changed it in 2011 where you couldn't do it anymore. And Belichick used to train on Fridays. No team trained on Fridays because you got a game on Sunday. Why would you train on Fridays? You had Fridays off. You had Tuesdays off. These guys are like, no. This guy was constantly here. Rob talked about the fact that for nicest for he says, I remember playing in college. I remember playing in high school. I remember playing for Miami. I remember playing for New Orleans. I don't remember what happened the nine years I was at Patriots because it went like this. Wow. He said, all I know is we won two Super Bowls. All the other places we didn't win, which means what? The standards would risen. So the question comes to you. Do you think, do you think there was a element of <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the, Lowering of standards gradually. Ah, it's okay. You know, yeah, no, you don't no, think that you no. don't think standards were dropped over the years. I think standards were dropped, but I don't think that was the cause. I think it was the effect. What was the cause? Uh, the cause was, uh, and you, I think you have to appreciate how little we really understand these great pivotal moments in history. Um, 1961, 1962, 1963. Every figure in authority had reached a certain age not the age of great flexibility, but a certain age, and had a certain repository of wisdom. They were confronted by an enormous group of young people flaunting their sexuality, their physical prowess. They were confronted in, in Yeats's terms of the young in one another's arms, and it undid them. It unmanned them. They didn't know how to respond. They were certainly prepared to face the Nazis all over again or to face the communists, but to face their own children in the luxuriant frivolity of sexual embrace was beyond them. Nothing in their training had prepared them to deal with the rebellion by their own children. And that's what took place in the 1960s, 1963 to 1971, 1972. And it's still to a certain, ta a certain extent taking place right now. I mean, after all, the overwhelming impression that the United States affords to any foreign eye is that every successive generation in its taste, to proclivity, desires, abilities, ambitions seems to be more infantile than the generation it replaces. Uh, certainly, if you look at American music, American culture, American life, it seems intensely infantile. At least, at least from a certain perspective. That began in the 1960s. It began with the collapse of authority. If you're asking me, why did these people allow their own authority to collapse? There's no answer beyond the one I gave you, that uh, certain sites are not meant to be seen by the elderly. And unfortunately, you have a huge population of young people who happen to be affluent. That's another factor. The first generation that didn't have to retire to a factory to the field in order to feed themselves. They had disposable, a disposable income. They could play at leisure. The first generation that happened to be affluent, displaying immemorial human urges, simply undid the, the figures in, in, in authority throughout American life. And I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. Is, uh, last question I'm going to ask, and I'm going to turn it over to you guys, and we'll go to callers. It's the last call question I'm going to have with... Uh, 
uh, with you on this topic is which institution do we trust too much that we should have never given them that much power and trust? Universities. Okay, I agree. Okay. Universities. Tell me why. Question. Unpack that, please. And when did that happen when we trusted them way too much? The degree to which the university has become a democratic institution is a function of the decision undertaken in the 1940s and 1950s to open it up to everyone. Don't forget, before 1940, university education was a very aristocratic education. It was restricted to very few people. It had uh, protocols of admission. Wealth was involved. But also intellectual ability. 1940, 1950, there was an enormous experiment in the United States to broaden the franchise, in effect. Um, what was neglected in this is that the professoriate, since time immemorial, has been kind of a monastic order. That is, the, the injunction uh, placed on people who want to do academic work is that Yes, if you're talented enough, you can withdraw from society. You can live a quasi-monastic life. You won't be earning a great deal, but you'll be doing the work that is necessary for you to do, and you'll be teaching the next generation. Again, as the, as the franchise was enormously expanded, this changed. Becoming a professor became a very lovely racket. I know. I did. Uh, you had lots of money, lots of free time. You had an endless panoply of uh, attractive young people in your audience. Um, you could do pretty much as you wanted for four months of the year. There was all sorts of uh, additional sources of financing available. It attracted an enormous number of people uh, who had never had any experience be beyond the academic world. Look, I went from Bronx Science to Columbia College, from Columbia College to Princeton, from Princeton to Stanford. And never once did I do an honest day's worth of work in anything beyond an academic setting. I had no idea what work outside the academic world was. I discovered very soon, of course, that I was completely unqualified, untalented when it came to work outside the academic world. But you have a whole generation who has not had that experience, that discovery of the limitations of their academic competence. And, of course, the result inevitably is the growth of extremely arrogant priestly class, uh, perfectly prepared to tell the rest of us how to live, what to do. And beyond the physical sciences, beyond physics and chemistry, to a certain extent biology, certainly mathematics, uh, very much prone to crackpot theories, very much prone to conspiracy theories, crackpot theories, ludicrous ideas about human nature, undocumented, unreferenced uh, assertions, avowals, I mean, that versions that make absolutely no sense in retrospect, but nonetheless swept through the academic world one after the other. You're not going to make too many friends in, the, in all our professors listening to this. Well, we'll see. What, what we, but by the way, we yeah. just had a moment. Yeah, exactly. Folks. We just had a he moment. He just took a risk. Yes. It Ooh. took an hour and 31 minutes yeah. for my guest today to take a risk. There's a lot of professors Get the out dice there that are going to be saying, Berlinsky, when Bring I run into you in the, the streets. We're going to play roulette tonight. Go uh, ahead, well, Adam. If you What's... had asked that question <coughs> at the beginning, I would yeah. have taken I asked you 50 questions that you could have taken yeah, a little bit of a risk. 49 I wasn't going to answer. Safe, safe. But I'm go gonna, ahead. I, can I go a totally different direction go with this? Go anywhere you sure. want to go because cars are waiting, by the this way. This is a question that I think that you're qualified to answer. I'd appreciate an answer. This has to do with mathematics, religion, evolution. Uh, the great um, 
American scholar, philosopher that we talked about earlier by the name of Joe Rogan had a bit back in 2009. He did a stand-up comedy. You know Joe Rogan? By name. Okay. He says sends his regards. Um, he had a bit uh, or a stand-up special called um, Talking Monkeys in Space where he's having a conversation, right? You got the title. He's having a conversation with a guy about his faith. And he, uh, the guy's like, I came from Jesus, bro. Like straight up, I'm from Jesus. I have faith. I came from Jesus. And Joe goes, how do you know so much? Aren't you like 30? Like, how do you know so much? Who do you, you know? And Joe Rogan basically says, look, uh, you know what I do? Uh, I don't know everything, but there's, um, I like to memorize shit that a lot of smart people have come up with. And I basically just kind of read what they've already kind of put together. And I just kind of regurgitate that. And one of the things that they found is something called the human genome. You familiar with this concept? The human genome. So basically he says what they found in the human genome is that we, us humans, are 96% chimpanzee. 96% chimpanzee. This is his bit. And he says, and sort of jokingly now, if I gave you a sandwich and it was 96% shit and 4% ham, are you willing to call that a ham sandwich? And basically saying, we're monkeys, bro. We're freaking monkeys flying through space. And he basically saying that that's the evolution right there. You're a mathematician. Is Joe Rogan right here? And please refute him if he's wrong. There were so many vivid voices emerging just now. I'm not quite sure who's saying what. Um, the doctrine that... Uh, are we? Did we come from monkeys? Are we 96% I mean, Is there an evolutionary path from our simian ancestors to you? Yeah, of course there is. Nobody doubts that. Not no, even some people do, do doubt that. That's what I'm asking. Not here. Okay. We're not, we're not about to. You're taking that. a stand and saying that we did come from apes. But that's uncontroversial. Whoa, it is, though, I feel. No. So you're, you're taking a stand and saying that we did come from apes. You're wrong. It's not controversial. Nobody, when pressed, will really deny. Because you have to endow come from apes with a certain amount of content. If you mean come from apes by a process of random variation and natural selection, I'll say, wait a second, I don't, I don't think that's quite accurate. If you mean to say there's overwhelming evidence that there are evolutionary transitions, we can walk the human line back and actually see the patterns emerging from both the fossil record and the paleontological record, of course, of course that's true. There, there, there is no evidence that it is anything other than that, which is perfectly compatible with the doctrine of creation, by the way. How's that? Because that seems because incompatible. Is, no. Evolution and creationism, I thought that's on different ends of the spectrum. It depends what you mean by evolution. If you mean you can trace your ancestors back, and sooner or later you will run into something that looks markedly unlike you, but in a certain way resembles you, sure, that's uncontroversial. You can do it genetically, you can do it in terms of the fossil record. If you mean, on the other hand, that at a certain point something new emerged mm -hmm. for which we have very little understanding, that too can be argued. For example, although there is a striking sequence similarity, it's, it's certainly not 98%, it's somewhere in the 80s. And there are a lot of questions about how those sequences are mapped one to the other. Don't forget, until very recently, we did not have a complete human genome. But if you look at uh, human beings, and you look at our presumptively nearest ancestors, there's an unfathomably large distance between us. 
unfathomably large. We are completely different. We have properties not seen in the rest of the animal kingdom. We have behaviors not seen in the rest of the animal kingdom. We have a cognitive apparatus that's not seen in the rest of the animal kingdom. So on the one hand, yes, I can go backwards progressively chasing ancestors and saying, well, there's a line of derivation that makes perfect sense. No point in disguising that. But at the same time, when we reach the stage of human beings, mm -hmm. there's an explosion of very interesting and very isolated properties. Both those things are true. Richard Dawkins wrote a book, um, and one of the more vivid examples that I remember from this book, I think it was called um, the, the, the Magic of Reality. Is that what it was called? I think so. Um, he talks about that if you take a picture, like you talked about your grandfather or your father, or your grandfather, if you take a picture and you just keep going back and back and back and back and back and back and you go thousands of pictures, you're going to run to like a great, 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 great grandfather that looks like Cro-Magnum Man. And then if you go back, 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 thousands, thousands, thousands of pictures, 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 you're going to run to some sort of ape. And then if you go back, 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 back to the freaking beginning, picture, 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 you're going to run to some sort of fish. And this is what Richard Dawkins has to say. Have you ever debated Richard Dawkins? Do you debate yeah, his theory? Yeah, I did. Sure, at Oxford. Okay. Is um, he wrong? To the extent that you're, you're offering um, a kind of uh, childish narrative, no, he's not wrong. If, if you go back far and far enough, um, let's take you as the test case. If let's I pursue it. your ancestry far and far, mm -hmm. further and further into the past, sooner or later I'm liable to reach a fish. So what? Okay. How do fish take pictures, though? Do they take <laughs> Is it kind of like they Wait, take out the are all I'm just glad that I needed to go all the way, all the way, all the way back, and it was yeah, just yeah, like these can apes of, taking pictures. Can of soy milk. Steve Jobs invented, like... <laughs> they were onto something. But, they but were, here's, here's yeah. the really interesting point. We can talk about distance. Let's go make back. calls. Let's take callers in two minutes. Go for it. Go back to the fish. That's a long way to go back. Well, go right. back to the common ancestor. Before the fish, that's even longer. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, I'm repeating a remark... Uh, apocryphally attributed to Chomsky that the distance between us and our nearest claimed ancestors is way greater than the distance between the apes and the flowering plants. That's a remarkable claim. That's what we're talking about. Instead of wondering whether the entirety of the human race could have sprung into existence from someone's fevered brow, we should be asking do we have a plausible explanation for a large suite of unique properties that makes us human? That's a much more difficult question to answer because as far as I know, 2021, 2022, we don't. We don't. Okay, are we ready to take some callers, John? The, the screen froze for the last uh, 30 seconds. John, do we know why it's frozen? Because it keeps freezing. It froze three times now. Yeah, we're good now. We have a Jordan on the line. Hey, Pat, how's it going? I got to salute you like a soldier, and then I got to move on with this question real quick because your guy says I got to move fast. Is that okay with you? Go for it. All right. So some years back, I traveled thousands of miles with uh, very, well, let's just say I ended up in a Bible study group, okay? And um, one of the Bible study group people were all like, oh, my friend's an idiot. He just doesn't get it, that you need to be religious, you need to be about Christ, all this, that, and the third. And I told him, I said, listen, man, you got to find an indirect route 
to potentially get your friend on board with even starting to think about this. And, um, and then after that, uh, I was wondering what this guy, what might be an indirect path that this guy might have a religious situation. And then the second question I had was, and, uh, sort of broadened this out was, uh, a lot of uh, religious experience happen when people are at their worst, whether they're an alcoholic, they got nothing left to turn to, but, uh, maybe a religious scenario. They're in a war, they're getting shot up. And, uh, just to broaden out that question a little bit more, you got situations like um, in the Soviet Union or in France where they were like, we're going to get rid of religion, right? And these things never went away. They're pretty universal. And there was, in, there was a big, sorry. Go ahead. What's your question? Did you hear my question? No, he has not yet. He's still waiting for the question. Okay. Number one, I'm wondering what a potential indirect path to Christ might be, or not Christ, an indirect uh, path for, like, instead of somebody coming to recruit you to a religion, maybe he's uh, fond of smoking cigars or something, or I don't know. And the other question I had was, what are you perhaps in too elevated of a position to where maybe you get down in the dirtiness of it, and perhaps you have a religious moment? And uh, generally speaking, that's my question. And also... The third is with things like the Soviet Union and France, where you had situations where they're trying to get rid of religion, and there was a counter push against that, and religion isn't uh, gone. Um, and a lot of these are intellectual pursuits and such to where they push this. I was wondering what his opinion was on that, and does it lead to sort of a mindset where, you know, you're just going along with the status quo? Because I've run into certain conversations with people where, you know, they want don't want to take a position after they, um, you know, after, like, if you don't believe in God, perhaps maybe you're, um, you know, then what's the point in living kind of thing for some people? And I've had some conversations with them where they're borderline nihilistic. What's your thoughts on that? Well, there, there are three and a half questions. The first question about an indirect path um, is a very interesting question, and of course, Every, every serious religion has talked about that or written about that. Uh, the position of the Catholic Church, for example, is crystal clear. And it can be summed up very simply. If you behave as if you believed in God, faith will be given to you. Which is an extremely sophisticated and subtle declaration. Do I know that that's true? No, I don't know that that's true, but I think it might well be true. Uh, faith is given to those who act as if they had faith. That's the first question, I think, which touches on questions of indirectness. And I think it's a very penetrating question because uh, the direct approach very often proves fruitless. You can't hammer a religious conviction into someone. You can terrify them into pretending, but that's not quite the same thing. The second question, if I recall it correctly, was the extent to which Certain desperate experiences can easily provoke a man to at least the affirmation of a religious conviction. That goes back to the question we were discussing an hour ago. Um, Call them extreme situations. The trouble with extreme situations is if you push extremity to the limit, they can do one of two things. They can reinforce or create a sense of faith, or they can destroy it completely. I know many people 
who entered the concentration camps as Orthodox Jews and left despairing, suicidal. Uh, by the same token, I know some people who found strength in their religious tradition when they emerged from the concentration camps. So I don't think that's a very good um, piece of evidence. Certainly, um, we all know of uh, the temptation in combat uh, and, and the aphorism, which I think is quite true. There are no atheists in the foxholes. That may well be true. I've never been in a foxhole. I can't speak with personal authority. The third question is, can we say anything intelligent, rational, reasonable about the experiences of Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany with respect to the collapse or undermining of religious, um, religious convictions as social institutions? Um, and yeah, I think we can. I don't think anyone is ever going to uh, count Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, Mao, Adolf Hitler as among the religious leaders of mankind. And there's a reason for that. I think attempts to say that Nazism and, and Stalinism were themselves um, negative nihilistic religions, those are unsuccessful. They weren't. They were essentially contemptuous of religious experience, atheistic to the core. Um, you know, Stalin at the end of his life may, ha may have had some use for priestly intervention. He was a suspicious man. But certainly they acted all of the totalitarian figures in the 20th century acted as if there were no possibility of ever being held to account for their crimes. I think that's the, that's the real issue. John, do we have any other callers? <clears throat> yes, we have Sienna on the phone. Sienna, how are you? Hi, good evening. I'm good. How are you guys? Fantastic. Good. What's on your mind? What's your question? First, I guess I just want to say thank you for guys all that you do. Uh, one question, Mr. Belinsky. Um, if the poorest man has the richest heart, is he really poor? I'm sorry, what was the first part of that? She said if the first oh. man has the richest heart, is his... Poorest. The poorest. poorest heart, sorry. The poorest heart is if, it. Say it, no, Tyler. sorry. We <laughs> can't hear you, again. by the way. Your audio yeah, is yeah, very audio low, low, that's yeah. why. Oh, if the poorest man has the richest heart, is he really poor? Oh, yeah. No question about it. But is he rich in something beyond what, what the question is addressed to? It's always possible, but I think that um, almost a universal experience of religious life is that there is um, a level of deprivation which makes concentration on anything beyond material sustenance very difficult. So you can say if, if a man is poor, he may non nonetheless be rich in wisdom, which is certainly true. But he remains poor. It's bad news. I, we got some bad news for you. That man is still poor. I don't know if it's a man <laughs> thinking about Marion. He's still a poor man financially. But let's go to the next one. Uh, John. Yeah, we have Michael on the line. Michael, how you doing? How's it going, Patrick? Bear David. Uh, Fantastic. Can everybody hear me, Adam? What's, what's on Hi, your mind? Awesome. Uh, my question is um, for, the, for the man of the hour. Um, do you, and as well as everybody else in there, um, do you all believe math was invented? Or created. Well, is there a big distinction between being invented and being created? I'm not sure. Usually, it, it's posed as: uh, Did human beings create mathematics, or did they discover mathematics? Is, is that the question? Yeah, it's just it's just the question of, of of do you think that humans invented math, or was was math just always uh, from the beginning of the universe? Was it always? It's a terribly you know, was it always difficult the, question because. Um, 
they're, they're fairly, fairly interesting philosophical arguments, but my commitment would be to say it's obviously this is not a human invention. It has no properties like a human invention. So God invention. created it. I didn't say that. Ooh, we get it. <laughs> I didn't say it. And you know His I didn't His faith say has it. increased, but your faith has increased in the last hour. No, it hasn't minutes. increased yeah, at I all. Noticed it. It's I at the faithful. same robust level it was when I entered the discussion. But the point is we have a, a very difficult problem talking about mathematics because these are objects that are obviously not physical. The number one is not a physical object, neither is the number seven. And um, they don't seem to be in time in quite the way we want objects of contemplation to be in time. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to say, well, the number three came into existence in 1932. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You can say that. There are philosophers who will say anything. But they do not elicit a whole lot of respect by that kind of declaration. Well, if it didn't come into existence at any particular time, does that mean that they're eternal in some sense? Well, yeah, I think, I think it does. Although I can't tell you what being eternal means since there's a conflict between the view of a mathematician and the view of a physicist. A physicist will say space and time arose, space and time arose with the creation of the universe at the Big Bang. Before the Big Bang, on one theory of cosmology, there was nothing, and not even the laws of mathematics. That's a view I find personally repugnant and intellectually unaccommodating, but there it is. Some people be believe that. But as far as the invention of mathematics goes, I don't know of anyone who studied mathematics seriously thinks this stuff was all made up. Not a soul. Good question, Doug. I have, I have a question as well. Yeah. Uh, you talked about as being Wait. a secular Jew in terms of that over time kind of the, the religion erodes and it kind of goes downwards. Uh, do you think that the role of uh, religion, has what that has played in history, has been an overall good thing or a bad thing? God, you guys are unbelievable. These are incredibly difficult questions. I just had occasion to write a long essay about the British Empire. Was the British Empire from 1600 to... 1949, when it finally ended, or 1960, when all the, the various colonies gained independence, was it a, a force for good or a force for bad? And you look at it, you study it seriously, you study it historically, you come to the conclusion, it's too soon to tell. Well, you think it's any easier to make the claim with respect to the Roman Empire, say from the age of Augustus to the fifth century when the Roman Empire in the West collapsed? Historians are still enraged with one another because one half of the historical community say, will say, ah, the Roman Empire was rapacious, it was cruel, it was monstrous, overbearing. Dr. Johnson has a, has a, a famous remark about the Roman Empire. These people lived by uh, stealing from, uh, from strangers, and when they ran out of strangers from which to steal, they stole from one another. That, that was his view of the Romans. On the other hand, we have to say without the Roman Empire, the entire glorious tradition of Western history would have been aborted 2,000 years ago. So it's a very difficult question to answer. Has the role of religion, has religion been a good thing overall? Has it been a bad thing? It's been an inescapable thing. It's been a necessary feature of our existence. And we can certainly point to good things and bad things, obviously so. The good things and the bad things don't quite get to the essence of the moral question we were talking about an hour, an hour and a half ago, whether without the structure of divine authority, 
a completely moral or acceptable social life is possible? That's a question that we have yet to answer. So I got, so since maybe our booker didn't manage expectation, he should have said we only ask tough questions. But I got a mm-hmm. question for you I think you may like, and it's not going to be complicated. Go ahead. Do you like ice cream? Yeah. Okay, then. So you can't tell us all we do is ask you tough questions. That's a very spiritual experience for some people when they have the right kind of ice cream. John, give us a last caller. Uh, before this man decides to increase his faith and become a Christian pastor by the time we're done. Watch David move from France to Fort Lauderdale, build one of the biggest churches here, and thousands of people show up. I'd go. I'd go. He would pray. He's probably more likely of building a church in well, South with, Florida with speaking you. Speaking of than, church. Hang on. Do we have a caller? Do we have, we have one last caller? Yes, Cameron's on the okay. line. Cameron. Cameron's yeah. back. Cameron, how you doing? Good. Uh, one question. Do secularists credit religion for promoting the golden rule? Do unto others as others as you would have others do unto you? Yeah. Yes. That's what you're talking about? Yes. Um, depends who you're listening to. I, I think the golden rule is kind of a, a folk apothem. I mean, every culture somehow discovers it. Some assign it to to a theological province, some assign it to just good common sense. It appears almost in every culture. It doesn't appear from the beginning. You go through um, the Greeks, for example, they had no use for the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Well, that's okay, except for the slaves, except for women, uh, except for a small social circle. the Romans also had difficulty with these kind of essentially Christian doctrines, not until the third and fourth century as Christianity achieved dominance in the Roman Empire, were these sentiments taken for granted as part of uh, accumulated wisdom. But yeah, every culture has, has encountered the golden rule, and I would be very skeptical about saying it's uniquely a religious principle. We got four more minutes if you got any questions or you're good. Well, I just, before I joined the church in Fort Lauderdale, I wanted to know if you had any definitive, strong opinions on Jesus Christ. What? Yes. Meaning, what are you willing and definitively able to say about the life of Jesus? That one time you guys had sushi together, how was <laughs> it? Like? Um, meaning, I- he existed. Check. I, I think there's was he born of- from the Virgin Mary? I don't know. Was he resurrected? Too soon to tell. What can you definitively say about Jesus? You've just said it. Okay, that's it. That's it. So I answered. My I mean, own look, question. look. How could you be asking a secular Jew for his personal opinions? Well, about Jesus, Jesus was a Jew, so you know maybe there's a lineage. If I go back and back and could, back and back to photographs, could be, I could see a picture of Jesus. Doubtful. Doubtful. So you don't think you do not think Jesus was the Son of God based on math? No, no. I mean, I'm, look. When I say I'm a secular Jew, I really mean Jewish. I, I am not committed to Christian doctrine. No, I'm not. I'm, you don't have to be a believer. Of course, to, but I don't believe in the Trinity either. But so, do you believe in Moses? Do you believe in Abraham? There are figures from the Bible for which I think there's very good reason to suppose they existed in some some fashion or other. Certainly, Moses is an historically attested figure, no matter what Freud had had to say about it. Uh, and Jesus is also a reasonably attested historical figure, but whether I believe in, say, the Trinity or the doctrine of insubstantiation, or whether I believe in original sin, or whether I believe in uh, the mystery of faith, or any of these questions, or, or uh, have a personal relationship with Jesus, no. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Well, before we wrap up the podcast, I think we should all join hands and pray and bow, and maybe we just... David, final words. <laughs> give, us, give us final words here before we wrap up. About what? Whatever you want to <laughs> talk about. Tell us what... Tell us... Uh, uh, have these uh, tough questions, the challenging you faced, you know, the last hour and 50 minutes. Uh, has, have we solved any of the major questions and problems in the world today? Any of the major questions and problems in the world today? Well, you've certainly s solved the problem of how best I might occupy myself between four and six o'clock today in very pleasant conversation. I think that should be enough for the rest of us. And you really, your main outcome was met. People now know you have a very good style of how you dress. Absolutely. Everyone knows. So, so that's been established. But uh, it was great having you on. I enjoyed uh, you uh, being a good sport and taking the questions and a pushback back and forth. It was fantastic. Uh, I hope the audience enjoyed it just as much as we did. Tomorrow we have uh, uh, Ethan Supley. Yeah. yeah. Actor, remember the From Titans. From Remember the Titans. Boy, okay, fantastic. Looking forward American to that History X. He lost like 80 pounds or something. Yeah, right? he's, he's, Not even 80 pounds, more than 80 pounds. Like 180 pounds. Yeah. yeah like, he's jacked now. Yeah, he's jacked now. So we're, ex we're excited about having he, him on he's, tomorrow. He's what? Jacked. jacked. Jacques in French means yeah. jacket, like in shape. Oh, like, that's custom. That's <laughs> custom. <laughs> but we'll, we'll be back same time, same channel, 9 a.m. Thursday. Today's what? Today's Tuesday. Today's, today's, today's Wednesday. Wednesday. That's right. Forget Pat. He's been traveling. I've, no, I've just got back like a <laughs> couple hours ago. We'll be back tomorrow or Friday. Is it tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow 9 a.m. Gang, tomorrow we'll see you guys tomorrow 9 a.m. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye, bye-bye.